It's my pleasure to welcome Larry. Larry is a clerk of our local presbytery and does a lot of work to support us, and now he's going to bring us the word from Psalm 14. Well, it is a great pleasure to be with you to share from God's Word this morning. Uh, I do have the pleasure of bringing you good news from the 14th Psalm. And that's our scripture reading, which I'll read now. Hear the Word of God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. It is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, now we would pray that you would cause the message of this text to sink into our souls and affect our conduct. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the past couple of generations, American culture has been, my text says, my my manuscript says, drifting away from the idea of right and wrong. I would say more like running away, wouldn't you? Uh, Americans have begun to view ethical decisions not as choices between good and evil, but merely as a matter of personal preference. Robert Simon, a philosophy professor at Hampton College, has noticed this trend over the years. He said that in the last several years of the 20 years that he, um, that he taught classes about the Holocaust, in those last several years he found out up to one in five of his students were unwilling to say that mass murder is evil. Uh, one of the students told him, of course, I dislike the Nazis, but you know who's to say they were morally wrong? Is that a little bit shocking? Uh, Kay Haugard, a creative writing professor at Pasadena City College, uh, noticed the same trend. She, she always had her classes read Shirley Jackson's short story, The Lottery. Uh, you may have read it in high school, as I did. Uh, It's a story about an ordinary group of people who engage in human sacrifice and who aren't particularly troubled by doing that. Hogarth said that in the past, your students always criticized the blind conformity of the people in the story that allowed themselves to commit such an awful crime. But in recent years, she said that that particular criticism disappeared from the classroom discussions of the story. And, And she asked her students about this, and one of them said, well, If it's part of a person's culture, we shouldn't judge, should we? (laughs) The idea that something could be considered evil has almost become a thing of the past in America. Except there was one brief window, one moment in our history in the last couple of decades that changed all that. One day, I bet you can tell when it was, September 11th, 2001. 
On that day, Americans were confronted with such a monstrous evil con con committed before our very eyes as we watched it on TV that it became far more difficult to suggest that choosing between good and evil is just a matter of personal preference. Uh, I wish I could say that that change of heart was permanent. But sadly, after a few months, we went back to our normal way of thinking, going down the road of denying that there's such a thing even as right and wrong. So we need passages like this one that's before us today, written by King David, that speak of the character of evildoers and their fate. So let's look at what he says. First notice what he says about the character of evildoers. Look at how David describes them. First of all, he tells us that they are godless. In verse 1, he tells us that they say in their hearts, there is no God. Now, David's not suggesting these people are professing atheists. Uh, they're not running around like some ancient version of Richard Dawkins arguing that God does not exist. That was virtually unknown in the ancient world. He means that they act as though the God of the Bible doesn't exist. They refuse to bow to him or to his law. They will not do uh, what he says is right. It's as though they pretend he isn't there. David says this, is a, this in another way in verse 3 when he says that they have turned aside. The idea is that they know about God, they've been taught about him and, and about what he approves and what he disapproves and they've rejected all of that. They have committed apostasy and since they've chosen to ignore him, they refuse to call on him as we read at the end of verse 4. They have their, on their own initiative broken off any communication with the living God. And apart from being godless, David says that these evildoers are corrupt on the inside. Twice the ESV uses the word corrupt to describe them, but, but there are two actually, there are actually two different words in the original. The first is the kind of word that you would use to describe sour milk. Um, the, uh, the second might be used to describe spoiled fruit. Uh, the New English Bible translates it with the phrase rotten to the core, and that's the idea. Uh, both words picture the same sort of reality. For from all outward appearances, uh, uh, the, the sour milk and rotten fruit may look good, but, but just take a bite into a rotten apple and see what you find. Or take a big gulp out of uh, a carton of sour milk. Uh, you don't even like to think about that, do you? Uh, you quickly realize how sickening they are, no matter how good they look. And many evildoers come wrapped in slick, appealing packages, uh, even though they are rotten to the core. But not only are the evildoers corrupt on the inside, their deeds done on the outside world match their rotten interior. David says in verse 1 that their deeds are abominable. Now that's a word that's often used in the Old Testament to describe an idol. The idea is that evildoers' deeds are, are hateful and disgusting in the eyes of God. In verse 6, David gives one example of their vile deeds. He says, they shame the plans of the poor. Now that doesn't quite do justice to the phrase in the original. The idea is that what they do is they destroy poor people's dreams. They take advantage of the weak for their own personal gain. David says the same thing in verse 4 in a more colorful way when he says, they eat up my people as they eat bread. 
David in this psalm tells us that, evil, the, that the evildoer is godless, corrupt, and heartless. And he sums up the picture of the evildoers with the very first word he uses to describe them in verse 1 when he calls them fools. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, we need to understand there are a couple of Hebrew words that are translated into English as the word, with the word fool. One of those could be uh, probably just as easily translated as simpleton, someone who's kind of stupid and easily deceived. If you've ever watched the Andy Griffith show, think of Barney Fife, okay? Um, but that's not the word that's used here. Uh, the word that's used here carries with it a sense of moral perversity. We might describe such a person as being so evil they are beneath contempt. Uh, instead of Barney Fife, we might bring to mind someone like Osama bin Laden, uh, who perpetrated that deed on September 11th. The evildoers that David is talking about here are very bad people. So you probably won't be surprised what he, with what he tells us about the second thing I want you to see in this passage, and that is the fate of evildoers. For when evildoers acting out of their rotten nature attack the poor and the defenseless, they come face to face with the living God, the judge of all the earth. Uh, for the, at the end of verse 6, God tells us that God is the refuge of those who are unjustly attacked. He is, verse 5, with the generation of the righteous. Or as the NIV puts it, he is present in their company. So David asks in verse 4 if, if the evildoers will ever learn uh, that's the sense of the first part of the verse. Verse 5, th there they are in great terror. Why? Because they're face to face with the living God who will call them to account. The vile deeds of evildoers will come to an end when God calls them to account for their deeds. And what a, what a, a dreadful thing it is to, to uh, face the wrath of a holy, righteous God. And, and don't you feel like David's description of evildoers fit the evildoers that you're aware of to a T, right? Uh, I mean, pick the evildoer of your choice, foreign or domestic. Do you think maybe they ought to read this psalm and get the message? Before I send the psalm to them, maybe we should consider what David says about the identity of the evildoers. For he does tell us who they are. Who are the evildoers that David writes about in this psalm? In verse 1, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. I mean, sure, the psalm applies to terrorists and to criminals and all manner of people like that, but, but only because it applies to everybody, including you and me. I don't know how many of you might remember the old comic strip, uh, Pogo, Walt Kelly's comic strip. Remember that character, Pogo, the little possum? Uh, if you don't remember the comic strip, you probably have heard his most famous quote, we have met the enemy, and he is us. <laughs> now you might be saying, oh, now, come on. I'm not all that bad. 
certainly not rotten to the core, and I don't have anything in common with those evildoers that David is talking about here. I have nothing in common with them. Really? You know, uh, there's a phrase in, used in politics. I'm not sure it's still, I've heard it for a while, but it used to be used quite a bit. Spin doctors, remember that phrase? We human beings, all of us are excellent spin doctors, aren't we? Um, we harbor evil attitudes and do vile things, yet we dress them, up, dress them up and attribute to ourselves the best of motives in an effort to convince ourselves and perhaps others that what we've done isn't really that bad after all. Perhaps someone bears anger and resentment in their heart towards someone and they've done nothing to resolve it. And they justify it by saying that they have a right to be mad after what that person did to them. <laughs> Ever said that? Ever thought that? Or maybe they burn with lust towards somebody of the opposite sex. Maybe even have an affair with them and then excuse it by saying their spouse is distant and uncaring. We even read about a minister who did that. Or someone may steal something from their workplace and say, well, that's okay because I go above and beyond the call of duty and, and I really deserve to be paid better. Or someone may pass on a tidbit of gossip that they just really don't want to keep to themselves and say that well, it's more than they bear. They, they need to have someone else close by who could help them bear the burden of knowing this terrible thing. Um, but we see we're only kidding ourselves when we give those kind of rationalizations because God sees them for what they are. Vile deeds that come from inner corruption. The difference between the evil things we do and the deeds of those terrorists on September 11th is one of degree and not kind. Both spring from the same seed that Adam and Eve planted deep in our souls when they rebelled in the garden. We all are born with that seed and it bears the same bitter fruit in all of us, whether your name is Vladimir Putin or Larry Hoop. There is no one who does good, not even one. Some of you are probably saying, didn't he say this was going to be good news? <laughs> Seriously? Well, you see, you never understand the good news. The good news of the gospel, the greatest news ever, until you realize how bad the bad news is. And 14th Psalm tells us pretty clearly how bad that news is for us. It's like the... Uh, Late Reverend Jack Miller used to say, cheer up, you're worse than you think. <laughs> but God is better than you can imagine. Because it's only when you realize how, how rotten we are to the core and, and how that produces vile acts that we can, we can take the step that changes it. And by the way, it's nothing you and I can change, you know? You talk about people turning over a new leaf uh, maybe they can modify their behavior a little bit, but it doesn't do anything about the core. There's only one who can change the core, and you know who that is, don't you? It is God himself. And, and, it, and it's only when we realize how great our need that we're going to cry out to the one, the only one who can do anything about it. And that's the one other thing that David tells us in this passage. He tells us that evildoers can be saved. <laughs> Into verse 6, the Holy Spirit has led David to 
meditate on the character of the evildoer and the fate of evildoers and the fact that every human being born to man and woman by the normal birth process is an evildoer. And of course, that includes him. Uh, perhaps he wrote this song after he, this song rather after he committed the uh, uh, adultery with Bathsheba and, and murdered her husband Uriah the Hittite. Uh, we don't know. But even it was, if it was before those particularly vile, particular vile acts, the seed that produced them was there in David's heart, and he understood that. When he wrote, there is no one who does good, not even one, he knew that he himself was included in that number. Just like all the rest of us human beings descended from Adam by ordinary generation, as the catechism puts it. So I expect by the time he'd written verse 6, he was overwhelmed by a sense of his guilt, a sense of desperation. What can he do? And so in verse 7, he cries out, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. He's saying, Oh, that salvation would come for us evildoers from God himself. It's the only place it can come from. Lord, rescue these evildoers, including me. You know, when we read that first half of verse 7, we ought to stop and pause for a few seconds as though we were waiting for the answer. Because, you see, we, we need to let sink in the answer we deserve to hear. Because God doesn't owe us anything. We deserve, as the Catechism says, only His wrath and curse. Our sin has earned us misery and death and an eternity in hell. We should expect heaven to be silent in answer to our helpless cry. But praise God, it is not silent. He is not silent. The, look at the last half of verse 7. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Now when you leak through the rest of the Old Testament, you find that that phrase, restore the fortunes of, is just a synonym for saying, Forgive our sins. In other words, David's saying is when the Lord forgives the sins of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. And notice he didn't say if. He says when, because he knows the character of God. That God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in, in loving kindness. That verse, that word is so wonderful. It's, it translates it, it's, it's not the best, it's, per, it's not a perfect translation of that Hebrew word hesed. Chesed, by the way, you have to kind of do that kind of thing, you know. And it means a love that will not let me go. A love that is a covenant love, a committed love. The love that God has for his people that he has chosen for eternity and come to save. God will forgive evildoers. That's what David has in mind. But, but how? How can he do that? Can a holy God simply overlook the vile deeds of a corrupt heart? Well, of course not. He's holy and righteous and perfect. He's a God of justice. He's not just going to pass over those acts of evil and say boys will be boys. Everybody, everyone wants to see justice done, don't they? You see injustice in the world and you think, that is awful. Something has to be done. And when it isn't done by the authorities, we think, how awful. And we wait for the day when, and we look to God and we say, God, 
bring justice in the world. Well, you know what? When God brings justice in the world, you know what happens? If he brought perfect justice without doing something else, who else would fall in that condemnation? Because he's perfect, didn't he? Uh, how can a holy God overlook? He can't overlook the vile deeds. He's got to do something about it. And, and David doesn't give the details here because you know why? It hadn't happened yet. But it has now, and we know what it means. We know that it meant that God himself in his grace and mercy came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He walked among us, and he brought the kingdom here to earth, didn't he? He, he healed the sick. He reached out to the sinner. He hung on the cross, paying for the deeds, those evil deeds, that you and I, who have called out to him, have committed. He died in our place. And he rose. <laughs> the father vindicated him and said, the price has been paid. And he said, there's going to come a day when all those who put their trust in you will also rise from the grave, transformed and changed, completely freed of their sin. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us true evildoers. And when you have been convinced you are an evildoer, that you have more in common with a serial killer than you do with Jesus Christ, and you have called out to God to save you through Jesus, and you're trusting in him and his sacrifice on the cross as your only hope for an evildoer like you, you're forgiven, you're clothed in his righteousness, you're born again and adopted into his family, and for all eternity he will be your God and Father and never leave your side, not once. Isn't that great? I told you there was good news coming, didn't I? It's the best news you ever heard, isn't it? Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. All you evildoers who want the burden of your evil doing lifted. And I, I will give you rest. And he does. That's the good news. The best news ever. And when you have wrapped your life around it, you will never be the same. And by the grace of God, you're set free to be the person you're meant to be. Not this one that's been corrupted, but the one that God has in mind when he pictured you as his child on that last day. When we will be made perfect. Glorified is the Bible word for it, right? Uh, when, when, as C.S. Lewis puts it, we will be transformed into a being so wonderful and perfect that we would be tempted to fall down and worship. Isn't that a great future to look forward to? And isn't that a great future to live now? Because you know what? Because the Holy Spirit, God has, God has brought that future into your life today through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he is at work to you to point out to you those places where you're still living like that old evildoer that you were. And to call you to be a different person and say, hey, I'll help you do it. You know, the scriptures say, set your mind on the things in earth, heaven, not the things on earth, right? What's that mean? It means to set your mind on that future glory and ask the Holy Spirit to transform you so that you'll be 
that person that he has meant you to be more and more today than you were yesterday. That is the promise of the gospel. That is the call to transformation that, that God has given us. Have you, have you cried out to him to save the, you from the old evildoer you've been? He invites you to do that. If you haven't done it, do ever, if you've never done it, do it now. Don't put it off for crying out loud. Why would you? Not only that, though. You know, in a certain sense, we need to be saved every day, don't we? Because we, we still have within us that thing that the Bible calls the flesh. That's the, the remnant of the old me that's still there. It's kind of, I, I, it makes me think of those zombie movies, you know? It's kind of wandering around in there trying to eat my brains. Uh, and, and, and it's still there, isn't it? God says, put that to death every day. Start this morning. Say, Lord, I want to live for you. Show me from your word what you want me to be like. You know, the word is, the, it's the, the basic meaning of Torah, which is that Old Testament word, you know, is instruction. God wants to instruct us as to how we are to live. And, and, and ask him to help you to be more conformed. You got to get in the word so you know what he's telling you to be, because it's way different than what the world tells you to be, Right? But when you're in the Word and the Spirit does that work, and you see that transformation, you know what people are going to notice? People you work with and your neighbors, your other family members, they're saying, what got into you, you know? Uh, well, the Spirit of God, right? And you know what? That opens the door for them, too, to hear the best news ever. People are really hungry for it, you know? They may not act like it, but they are. And we've got it. It's like people are starving and we have the banquet table. And so we need to share that with them. And also we need to do the one thing that David says during at the end of the psalm. He says, when the Lord restores the fortunes of the people, that is when he forgives their sins, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. We should be the most happy people in the world. Yeah, I know the world around us is a mess, and our lives often bear the mark of a fallen world, don't they? Disease, um, problems, and yet, and yet, we have a future that is better than anything that we're moving toward, and we have a God who walks with us every day, even in the midst of the darkest days. And so we can rejoice and be glad. Let's do that. And let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we confess that we are evildoers. Corrupt. I mean, we, we who are in Adam have sinned in so many ways. Oh, God, we ask for your mercy and grace to forgive us our sins and help us to, to by the power of your spirit, be more and more like the people we're going to be. Uh, Lord, I pray too, if anybody here hasn't ever cried out to you for forgiveness and, and release from their evil doing, that you'd move in their hearts to do that today. But for those of us who have, help us to this day experience that salvation anew. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.